This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, hoj här kommer Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Carlson. Carlson, jag så bra som mig. Carlson, Carlson, Carlson scores! Carlson, yeah. Carlson, yes. Welcome everybody Carlson. to another episode of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast, the best fantasy hockey podcast in the world. Hosted by two guys on Eric Carlson in their keeper pools. It's another episode of our summer series. Is anyone listening? I don't know. I don't care because I get to talk to Brian Com. Elon, people are listening as always. And we are very happy that they are joining us for this wild ride that is the 2015 Keeping Carlson Summer Series, where if you are listening, you're getting some valuable season in review type information that we might not go over in such detail when we get to the preseason series. And actually, we probably won't get into it in that much detail. So this is like the hardcore studying for the hardcore poolies who are getting the edge and the jump on beating all their opponents in the 2015-16 fantasy season. Well, okay. Now that you've pumped me up, I'm ready to talk about our theme for today, which is the opposite of what we've been doing the last couple of episodes where we were talking about all these players who did so well and we were wondering if they're still going to be able to keep it up. Now let's look on the other side of the coin. We've got some players who kind of sucked last year, definitely didn't perform to the level that their owners expected of them when they drafted them, likely high up in their pools. And I want to know, Brian, for all of these people that we're going to talk about, Has their value gone down? Should you not expect as much from them as we did last year? Or is this a perfect opportunity to buy low on people who are still good and maybe just had bad luck? And there's nowhere else that we can start aside from in Toronto with every player. No, but specifically Phil Kessel. What happened with Phil Kessel? He ended the year with 61 points in 82 games, which, you know, is a pretty good season for most players. But this is Phil Kessel. He had 80 points the season before. He had 52 points in 48 games in the lockout-shortened season, 82 points the year before that. So he's been a point-per-game guy. He's also been nearly a 40-goal guy last year, though, only 25 goals. So I want to start by asking you what happened with Phil Kessel last year and really it was only the second half of the year right he was pretty much a point per game guy up until the all-star break everything fell apart in the second half of the year can we expect it to still be just as bad for him at the start of next season or do you expect things to turn around well right out of the gate let's be clear about one thing phil kessel no matter what you hear he is an elite hockey player and he has been an elite fantasy option since about the 2011-2012 season In the last four seasons, he's amongst the top 20 point-getting, goal-scoring, and shot-taking forwards league-wide, and he's even higher 
if you're only counting wingers. Now, we're about to belabor a point that has probably been made several times from several outlets over the course of the last three years, but here we go. Elon, if I read to you some of the names of the wingers ahead of him on that list of point scorers and goal scorers and shot takers, you could tell me the amazing sentiment they've had to help them get there. Let's let's play a little game. Who has Ovechkin had? Ooh, this sounds like fun. Backstrom. James Neal. Malkin. Corey Perry. Getzlaff. Right. Okay. Now here we go. Name me the amazing centerman who has been helping Phil Kessel put up those incredible and elite totals <laughs> over the last four years. Mm-hmm. Okay. I see where you're coming from. I know you're going to once again make fun of me for having held on to Tyler Bozak too long last season. Yeah, well, Tyler Bozak is kind of the answer, but it's also a trick question because Tyler Bozak is not an elite centerman. Now, Bozak is much maligned, and Elon, I have been telling you to get rid of him for a while, To be honest, his scoring has never really been the problem up until about halfway through last year. His scoring and shooting distributions are less than but not actually terribly different from other elite centermen. He doesn't take a lot of shots or score a lot of goals, but he does get plenty of assists and points. Mind you, many of us don't feel that he earns those points and assists quite as honestly as the others in that group. And the reason why is because there's a bigger, clear difference between Bozak and the Getzlaffs, Malkins, and Backstroms of the world. And that is that those guys possess the puck at around the level that you'd expect of a first or second line player. Tyler Bozak possesses the puck with the equivalent success of a fourth line fringe NHLer. He is helpless against other teams' top lines and shutdown lines. And so every goal or point that first line scores requires a little extra effort. Now, it's only fair to mention that Bozak's line mates, one is Phil Kessel and the other is generally James Van Riemsdyk, they're no better in terms of possession, but they are far better in shot generation and goal scoring. We can't be certain exactly who's to blame for the abysmal possession numbers for the entire line, but there is a widely held hunch and an informed hunch that Bozak is the lone member who does not pull his weight and that the other two could benefit from the help of a legitimately talented top six centerman. Okay, Brian, I'm going to let you finish. But the thing is, like, I know what you're saying, and I know that you've been saying for a long time that Bozak doesn't pull his weight. But the thing is, like, Kessel's been playing with Bozak the last couple of seasons, and he was fine, and for the first half of this season. So what exactly happened midway through? The line mate didn't change. Did Bozak all of a sudden do even worse than he was doing before, and that's what pulled Kessel down? Yeah, and that's the amazing thing about Phil Kessel and why he's elite is because he's been doing all this with an anchor strapped to his ankle. So good question. What exactly happened last year that made it different from all the other years that Kessel played with Bozak? Well, first off, the wheels fell off that entire Leafs team in a way that even they had not experienced before. And that's saying something when you're talking about the Toronto Maple Leafs. Their coach was fired. Then they had a new one come in who was trying to implement good defensive habits and systems, offense and cheating and looking for the long pass and not following a firm system was not really an option anymore. And actually, their team-wide possession did improve, but the scoring didn't follow. The reason for that could be that their team-wide shooting percentage at 5-on-5 fell nearly 4 percentage points with their new coach from a reasonably normal 9.5% to a very, very sad 5.7%. And in a nutshell, that's what happened to Phil. His own personal shooting percentage took a serious hit too. Had he managed to match the reasonably stable 
12% success rate that he'd managed in the three years prior, he would have ended the year with like 33 or 34 goals, which is eight or nine more than the underwhelming 25 that he actually scored. It's only like a 3% difference, but with the volume of shots that Kessel takes, it would come out to that large of an effect. Yeah, I'm taking a look at his month-by-month numbers. And, you know, for October, November, December, he was great. Like 13 points in 10 games, 12 and 13, and then 16 and 15. Things fell apart in January and beyond. But actually, he took his most shots in January and in March. But somehow, he scored only two goals on 52 shots in January, while he had seven goals on 43 shots in December. So clearly, just, he was getting really bad luck, it looks like, once 2015 started. Yeah, so bad luck can explain part of it, although some others have also put out the argument that Kessel has already peaked, and he's now on, like, the general decline. And while it might be sort of true, and there might be some substance to it, the drop-off for next year should not be significant enough to make him a whole lot less valuable in this year's drafts than he was in last year's. Keep in mind, he's still relatively young. He will turn 28 at the start of this season, which is not really old by NHL standards. Yes, you're in your prime. You might be heading towards your peak or just about plateauing, but you're not in the decline that you might be going into your early 30s. So why are you saying that people are saying that he's already into his decline. Like, he was an 80-point player every season and all the way up until January. He's really only declined in these last four months of the season. Is that the reason why people are saying he's hit his decline, or were people saying that even before? No, people were saying it before, although I think his struggles might have spurred on their argument. And really, they're just looking at a couple different metrics that you do see, like a slight downward slope. But like I said, even if there is one, it's not going to be significant enough that you should really care about how it's going to impact his fantasy value for the next year or two years. Okay, so before we get to some hard projections, what do you think the effect will be of the new coach in Toronto? Now they have Mike Babcock signed. Maybe his centerman won't be Bozak anymore. Do you think of this as possible that they'll be able to put Kessel in a better situation? Well, that's the big question. And hopefully if they do get someone competent in there, then Kessel will have a hand in bouncing back to the numbers that he's been used to seeing over the last several years. And I got to say, I'm starting to have a little bit of faith in Toronto Maple Leafs management. It is difficult to find a competent centerman that's not already on the team if they look elsewhere. It's easier said than done, but the Leafs at least seem to be on the right track with the other personnel decisions they've been making in the last handful of months. I feel like if they can get rid of David Clarkson somehow, maybe they can also find a way to get that centerman or at least shuffle the lineup and set up a system from which Kessel can benefit, assuming that he's a part of it. That question mark still hangs in the air, but I have a difficult time thinking that he does not start this next season as a Toronto Maple Leaf. I hope I don't eat those words. I have no inside information on the matter. Okay, so then let's get to it. Before the All-Star break, 44 points in 48 games. After the All-Star break, 17 points in 34 games. We went from a point per game to half point per game, which is like going from 82 points on the year to 41. So for next year, do you see him closer to 82 or 41? I guess I know your answer. You're going to say closer to 82, but how far lower than 82, or do you think he will be able to be a point-per-game player? Like, basically, where do you draft this guy at this point? I'll take it back to what I said right at the outset. Phil Kessel is elite. He is still elite, and you should be drafting him as such. 
I would expect a bounce back to the point per game neighborhood that he has lived in since 2011. All right, so he may be a bargain for some people who are in pools where their opponents are really only looking at what's happened recently. Maybe Kessel will fall. And if Brian, if you think he's going to be a point per game player and you could get him while maybe 70 point players are getting drafted, that might be a great bargain for Phil Kessel. Of course, all of this will be thrown out the window depending on what moves are made over the summer. If Kessel gets traded, we'll obviously talk about that, or if the Leafs make any significant trades. So we might not be done talking about our expectations for Phil Kessel, but as of now, it sounds like you're saying to not despair and that he should bounce back. Though you know you did kind of say that all throughout the end of the season, and maybe some people were mad at us that held on to him longer than, at least in their minds, they should have. But I guess you're just going to say that was small sample size and it seemed like he was going to be able to bounce back like do you regret advising in say february that you thought people should hold on to kessel or do you think in hindsight that might not have been the best advice at the end of the day i was wrong but i still think that was the right advice to give at the time looking at everything and again like i said like that whole lease team just totally imploded and they were playing a system that was really focused on getting into good habits like starting from the very basics and not giving a whole lot of room for offensive bursts and creativity. And I also mentioned that huge drop in on-ice shooting percentage for the entire team. So I don't regret giving that advice, but I do regret that it was wrong, and I'm sorry. Uh, okay, one last thing. You know, to be fair, I'm just looking at all these numbers. His shooting percentage in March was 1.9%. He took the most shots of any month in the season, and he had only one goal to show for it. So... That gives me hope that, you know, in most months when he takes 53 shots, I expect him to score more than one goal. And Elon, that's why I don't really regret the advice is because who could have predicted such a low shooting percentage lasting till the end of the season? Shooting percentage is supposed to be reasonably stable if you have a really low one or a really high one compared to your usual numbers. That's not really something that's supposed to be taken as a suggestion of somebody improving or declining in skill level. It usually is just bounces, at least in the short term. And by short term, I'm talking like, you know, anything less than four or five hundred shots. Yeah, I was agreeing with you. And I'm excited to see Phil Kessel bounce back next season. But let's talk about someone who maybe pulled a bit of a reverse Kessel last season. I want to talk now about Thomas Vanek. Overall, not a great season, right? He only ended with 52 points in 80 games. And considering the season before, he had 68 points. That was a huge decline. And this is also someone who was a 70-point guy for a, a season or two in Buffalo. So definitely a big decline for Thomas Vanek. But the reason why I say that he pulled a reverse Kessel is that he actually started the season poorly and sort of bounced back a bit come the end of the year. He had 11 points in 13 games in March, which was definitely better than the 29 points in 46 games he put up before the All-Star break. So there were some signs of life from Vanek near the end of the season. But overall, like I said, a big disappointment. Now, Brian, next season, same question as always. What do you think happened here? Was it bad luck last year or is Vanek a worse player? This is actually a case where I'm not sure how big a role luck is playing in the outcome of what Vonick did last season. First things first, let's look at his ice time. He posted the lowest average time on ice per game numbers that he has since his rookie season with Buffalo, all the way back in 2005-2006. And that still stands especially true if you isolate for his power play time. 
He saw nearly four minutes of power play time per game last season, during which he notched 68 points while balancing between three different teams. This season, on the other hand, he saw just three minutes a game on the power play on average, which was the lowest total of his career, including that aforementioned rookie season. And the outlook isn't too rosy for his power play futures. He's pretty firmly on the outside looking in for Minnesota's top power play unit, which is made up of Parisi, Pominville, and Koivu. However, in spite of all that, Vonick still managed a reasonable power play point total that is actually pretty similar to years past, despite the cut in ice time. All this to say, he managed to do about the same on the power play this year with less than he had been given in previous years. So that's great, but I don't know if we can count on him to keep that up and keep beating those odds as he moves through his early 30s. But there is a big legitimate concern, and it dogged him all year long, and that was his even-strength shot rate. As we mentioned several times in the early months of this season when we were getting a ton of questions, everybody was really sad he was not contributing to their fantasy teams. Vonick was just not attempting shots or registering shots with the frequency that we've come to expect from him. This past season, Vonick was attempting about three or four fewer shots on net per 60 minutes at even strength compared to nearly every other season he spent in the league. And, of course, that fewer number of attempts affected how many pucks actually made it to the net and registered as shots on goal. He saw about a 25% drop in the number of shots on goal that he was able to register per 60 minutes at even strength. Again, he still finished with a respectable 21 goals and 52 points, especially given that he was goalless through his first nine games of the year. But his decreased power play time and lower Corsi and shot rates are definitely causes for concern, in my opinion. I don't even know that it was an age-related issue this year. Perhaps he's just not the big gun on Minnesota in the same way that he was in his previous NHL destinations. But it is worth mentioning that being on the wrong side of 30 is going to compound whatever issues that he does have to work through as a member of the Wild. I think in past years we've drafted Vonick in a glass-half-full kind of way. He'll get around 60 or 65 points with reasonable potential for more. This year, though, maybe we flip that and consider him more as a glass half-empty pick. You can hope for 60 or 65 points, but accept that that might be about what the ceiling for him is going to be. Yeah, I have to tell you, I'm also concerned about Vanek, and for me, it's very concerning when the ice time goes down. You talked about power play ice time, but even overall... He averaged only 16 minutes per game this season, and that's down from closer to 18 or 20 minutes that he was getting last season on the combination of Buffalo and Montreal and the Islanders. So his role on Minnesota is definitely diminished. And looking at the splits, he even went down to 14 minutes a game in March. And actually looking at his playoff numbers from this year, and I know you say not to consider playoffs, but I think in terms of role on the team, it is something worth looking at. And he had only four points in 10 games, all assists, and he was averaging 14 minutes and 12 seconds a game. Clearly, like you say, not one of the top guns in Minnesota, and there's no reason to think that his role is going to increase next season. You know, they have some young players that might be challenging him for the role that he was already playing. You know, guys like Nino Niederreiter or maybe Jason Zucker. I mean, I don't know. These are new names, but they were doing something last season. So I don't know. I'm very nervous about Thomas Vanek. I'm thinking I'm not going to draft him expecting anything more than like 55 points. Okay, so you're going to be the conservative one here. That's interesting. Maybe it's because you have that concern that somebody else on the team will challenge him. 
I don't. I think he is clearly their best winger, not on the top line. Even though we saw some impressive goal-scoring runs from Jason Zucker and Justin Fontaine, I still don't think long-term that they do better than Vonick at this point in their respective careers. So I'm happy still saying Vonick is a 60-65 point guy. Remember, with that glass half-empty. Well, regardless of if your glass is empty or full, you just want to make sure your glass doesn't break because those edges can be sharp. And that leads us to the next guy I wanted to talk about, Brian. Patrick Sharp of the Chicago Blackhawks. This guy has been such a solid fantasy option for so many years now. Like, if you go back to 2010-2011, he had 71 points that season, then 69 in 74 games, so even higher if you count for him playing the full season. You know, last season, he had 78 points in a full 82-game season, and then this year, things really fell apart. He fell to 43 points in 68 games, which is a 52-point pace, and like a guy going from a 78-point pace to a 52-point pace, that's very significant. And we talked about him all throughout the year. Of course, there was this whole thing about he was playing on the third line on Chicago, and we couldn't understand why isn't this guy in the top six, while guys like Chris Versteeg and Brandon Stad were staying there instead. I will say he's had a pretty decent playoff so far, 10 points in 14 games. But still, a lot of people were disappointed by Patrick Sharp last year. We fielded questions all throughout the year of whether people should trade for him or drop him or any of that. So, Brian, I really want to know, what can we expect now from Patrick Sharp? He's not a young guy. I can't expect that you're going to say he's going to hit his peak moving forward. But is he going to be able to go back to the pace he was at before this down year? What you said about his teammates is actually really interesting because it is a point that we talked about a lot this year about him being on the third line and maybe not getting as many opportunities to play with the best players on Chicago. But if you look at the overall measures that we use to see how good his teammates have been, we look at the percentage of time on ice that his teammates see on average and also their coursey. And what we see in their time on ice is that, yeah, it's a little bit lower than previous years, but not significantly. So he was playing with guys who are not necessarily given the prime ice time amongst their teammates, but their possession numbers still managed to be all right. So to me, that's actually not a huge concern. And one of the things that I was saying throughout the year when he was struggling was that he's Patrick Sharp and he can do it himself. But he couldn't really do it himself this year. And I think that was abnormal and will remain abnormal, at least for the near future. He had his lowest five-on-five time-on-ice-per-game number since 2009-2010, but even in that year, he scored 66 points in 82 games played. So I'm just going to cut to the chase here and say that at even strength, Patrick Sharp's shooting percentage sucked, and his teammates' shooting percentages sucked. And that's kind of all there is to it. His total possession, scoring chance, shooting, and shot attempt numbers all stayed about the same as they had in previous seasons where he'd found success, And on the power play, nothing was terribly amiss. So where I come down is saying that Patrick Sharp did not necessarily suck last year, but his season sure did. And if you can handle that kind of logic and that kind of explanation, then you can handle having the expectation that he can bounce back and mostly return to form in the coming season. So yeah, I guess I see what you're saying, that he just had a bad shooting percentage and so did his teammates, and so he should be able to bounce back. But one thing, though, is you can't bounce back so well if you're getting such low ice time. And to go from around 19, 20 minutes a game to not even 17 minutes a game, that's a lot less time to put the puck in the net. 
And it's not like things have improved in the playoffs. He's averaging 16 minutes and 42 seconds so far in this postseason. So I do worry that Patrick Sharp might not have that position on Chicago moving forward that he used to. He's still a talented player. I still think that he'll be able to do better than he did last year, just because, like you say, he should get better luck, and he does shoot the puck a lot. But I don't think he's going to be able to get back to 70 points if he's not even playing top-line minutes. That's a really fair point, Elon. And I think what we can expect is that He'll return to his normal, say, goals, assists, and points per 60 numbers, but he might not have as many groups of 60 minutes because he'll be seeing lower ice time on the whole. So I expect him to still produce at a similar rate, but with less time to produce at that rate, his numbers, yeah, they might not approach that 78 points that he saw in 2013-14. I still think it's safe to expect like 65, 70 points from him. He still gets some pretty good power play time with some pretty good players. But you might want to take him down a notch or two from where you had him going into this season. Yeah, well, I guess maybe this is the kind of thing where, depending on when your draft takes place, you may be able to see a little bit of the preseason and where the Hawks are using Patrick Sharp. I don't know how valuable that is, because things could obviously change during the season. But if he continues to play on the third line with the likes of Antoine Vermette and Tuvo Teravainen, I mean, I guess Teravainen has some upside and maybe he'll grow into becoming a great player to play with, but definitely not the same as playing with Taves or Kane or Hosa or any of these guys. So... I'm curious to see what's going to happen with Patrick Sharp. He's been a star for so long, so you'd think he should be given a chance to produce like he used to. It was such a weird drop-off. Like, even It's not even like he had this drop-off at the beginning of the year. Like It's kind of like a Kessel situation. He had 13 points in 13 games in January. Like He was doing good up until the end of January. Then all of a sudden in February, he had two points in 13 games and then never really picked it back up until the end of the year. And that's when his ice time started to go down. He was down to closer to 16 minutes than 17 minutes by the end of the regular season. One thing I take solace in is that even with that drop in ice time, he was on pace for 280 shots on goal, which would have been his third highest total of his career. And that's why I say that Patrick Sharp can do it himself, and I still hope that he can next season. All right, so it looks like we are having, yeah, this role reversal today. Same with Vanek. I think that you're projecting him a bit higher than I would, but of course... I'm always looking at this like situation, and the situation can easily change, and he could be on the first line to play 18 minutes, and I'll be like, oh my god, I wish I had Patrick Sharp. But okay, let's move on. We still have a couple more sucky players we want to talk about. Not sucky players, but players who had sucky seasons. A good distinction to make. <laughs> There's a team that I'm sure all of you know we're going to go to that frustrated so many people. So many people drafted from that team, disappointed their owners. Of course, I'm talking about the Colorado Avalanche. And I think the guy that we should zone in on for today is Matt Duchesne. And I don't know what it is about that episode, but there was an episode last summer that I feel like I reference all the time where you talked about new players that have joined the elite group of fantasy options. And you put Matt Duchesne in that list, and hopefully you didn't convince too many people to draft him unless it's a keeper pool and you think that he will be in that status. But, you know, the previous season he had had 70 points in 71 games. The year before that he had had 43 and 47. Like, he definitely was playing like a point-per-game player going into last season, but then he only had 55 points in 82 games. A huge, huge drop-off. So, of course, the question becomes, did you blow it? Was there something that you missed that now you realize, oh, man, I really shouldn't have projected Matt Duchesne to be a top elite player? Or do you think that your prediction was solid and it was just bad luck, like you've said about some of these other guys? Well, if you look at his career history, and believe it or not, Matt Duchesne has now played six full seasons in the NHL, you'll see that aside from his rote point totals, 
This year's numbers actually looked more normal than last year's numbers did. So I would say that the year before this one was actually a bit weirder than this past one. So the question is, did Matt Duchesne set the bar unreasonably high for himself with his point-per-game season back in 2013-14, and was he doomed to fall back to earth this hard? And if he had had that really successful season in his 29- or 30-year-old year, then I might think so, but that is not the case here. Matt Duchesne will go into this season as a 24-year-old and should still be climbing the hill to his peak. One big difference between this year's 55 points and last year's point-per-game pace shows up in Duchesne's power play numbers. He finished this season with a career-low seven power play points, and that wasn't just a career-low, that was a career-really-low. He had beaten that seven-point total in even the lockout-shortened season, and it's a whopping 10 points less than he notched with the men advantage just one season earlier. So what happened? Well, let's begin where we've begun with a lot of these guys, and the story starts with ice time. Believe it or not, Matt Duchesne saw the least average power play time per game amongst regular abs forwards. So of Colorado's top six, Duchesne was actually the low man on the totem pole. How do you feel about that, Elon? Does that surprise you? Did you see that coming? Yeah, you know, that is weird. I just assumed that he was getting regular time. But now that I recall, and you make me think about it, Colorado really did have two pretty even power play units. So maybe the year before they had a more clear number one and number two. So I guess it makes sense that his time would go down. Yeah, I mean, when you think about who they've got up front, they have a really talented group. So it's not so weird. It's not like Duchesne has to be in the doghouse to be at the bottom of that top six. It just means that there's a lot of really quality forwards to be spread across both units and to be distributed roughly even ice time. And he wasn't necessarily last by a mile, but he was last, and there's some weight that should be given to that. But it really isn't just ice time. Regardless of how much Duchesne was given, he really struggled with what he had. If we look at it from a points per 60 minutes perspective, which sort of helps control for his ice time and makes it a bit of a non-factor, he still scored at a rate per 60 minutes on the power play that was less than half of the number that he'd established in previous years. And just for context, cutting that number in half is a really difficult and awful thing to accomplish for a forward in the NHL. That really shouldn't happen without an obvious explanation like a nagging injury or serious age. But we can see why this happened by taking a look at Duchesne's shooting stats. His shooting percentage with the man advantage was literally a third of what it had been in previous years, which is another very difficult and awful thing to accomplish. Everybody should understand that players are pretty much expected to shoot with above average success rates on the power play because of the plum opportunities that they get to see with a skater missing from the opposition's ice. But Duchesne shot less than 6.5% with the men advantage, which is paltry and far below the 11% plus success rate that he shot at at even strength. This was only the second year of Duchesne's career in which his even strength shooting percentage was better than his power play shooting percentage. Is that going to repeat this year? Is his even strength shooting going to be better than his power play shooting? Probably not. And if his power play production normalizes, should we still be concerned about the rest of his game at even strength? Looking at his numbers, I don't really think we should. If you allow him those 8 to 10 power play points that he realistically could have put up this past year but didn't, it puts him at about 65 points, which is still a respectable number, especially 
if you remember back to the start of the year, this Avs team, Elon, like you were mentioning, they pretty much sat out the first month or three of the season as Patrick Waugh stubbornly insisted they continue running around like chickens with their heads cut off. And once they did start making corrections to the glaring errors that were in their systems, the Avs possession numbers did improve and so did their individual scoring numbers. And there is a silver lining in all this. Despite all the severe drop-offs that he saw in the power play, he did register a career high for shots per 60 minutes with the man advantage. It's just that those extra shots were not going in. So with all that said, and considering the context of the Avs team that he was playing on, 65 points on the season would not be quite as bad as it might look. And I'd consider that to be the floor for what Duchesne can do next year. His 5-on-5 numbers are virtually unchanged compared to his career averages, and the 172-minute sample of poor play at 5-on-4 should, in all likelihood, be rendered as an odd blip in the bigger picture of Matt Duchesne's career. It's interesting, though, because you mentioned his power play shots were up But also, I'm looking at his total shots on the year, like forgetting about the power play, they were really far down. Like the previous season, he had 217 shots in 71 games, which is over three shots a game. And then this year, he only had 207 shots in 82 games. So that's more like a 2.5 shots per game pace. So it seems like he was shooting the puck less. And if you're saying that he was shooting the puck more on the power play, that must mean he was shooting the puck all the more less at even strength. So do you think that's a concern? Well, like I said earlier, that 2013-14 season was actually the abnormality if you look at his career so far. He took a huge step forward that year, and it's unfortunate that he couldn't keep it up this year, but he didn't necessarily take a huge step back from the career numbers that we've come to expect. Hopefully he can get back to those heights again, or at least end up somewhere in between what he did this year and the year before. But really, in the bigger picture, what he managed to do in terms of shots per 60 minutes this past season is nothing to be ashamed of, and I'd still be happy to have those numbers with me on my fantasy team. Right, but do you still consider him one of the top elite players like you did last year, or are you knocking him down a tier? Like, especially now that there's all these new guys that we have to start considering. You know, we talked about in the last couple of episodes, the Tyler Johnsons and the, I don't know, Philip Forsberg and Mark Stone, like... Do you want Matt Duchesne over all of these guys still? Or now do you think that these other guys at least join him in maybe more of a second tier? I think I still want Matt Duchesne more than those guys. Like, I think he's still a pretty decent shot to get 65, 70 points. And he's shown that he can do more in the past. And I still believe that he can do it in the future. Remember what I said about his age? He's going to turn 25 years old midway through this next season. I think his best years are ahead of him. And especially in a keeper league, He's a guy that you want if you're ready to compete, if your window is opening in the next three years. He is just entering his prime, and I do believe the best is yet to come for Matt Duchesne. Well, all right then. And, you know, now that we mentioned him, I know you said that I'm not supposed to care so much about what's happening in the playoffs, but Tyler Johnson is still now at a point-per-game pace in the playoffs. He's leading all players in the playoffs right now, 18 points in 17 games. I'm starting to uh, feel really great. I mean, he's definitely going to get a big bump in his draft value, and it, it should have already been high after his great season like we already talked about. But yeah, I guess I don't want to get all into Tyler Johnson again. But what an amazing playoffs he's had, and he's the guy that probably has the biggest target on him going into next year, as some people are going to think is going to be a huge step up from where he was drafted before. Yeah, well, we didn't exactly shortchange him when we talked about the season that he could have next year based on what he did this past year. But you're also right to not get too excited about what's happening in the playoffs. And you're also right that he will have a target 
on his back going into next season. He's not going to get treated as gently, perhaps, as he was this year. Not to say he was this year, but maybe other teams will have read the book on him a little bit more closely going into matchups with Tampa. So you'd still rather have Duchesne over Johnson? That's a tough one, but yeah, I think I'd still have Duchesne. And realistically, they could end up pretty close, but I do have a little bit more faith in Duchesne. All right, write in if you disagree. I think I disagree. I think I want Tyler Johnson for next year, but maybe I'm more of a guy affected by what's happening recently. Let's go to the next player that we wanted to talk about in our list of people who had disappointing seasons, and Brian's going to tell us whether or not you should count on them to bounce back. Here's a guy the opposite side of his career. Let's talk about Brian Campbell on Florida. This guy was pretty much a lock to get you around 40 points for the last few seasons. Like, he was a really solid guy to draft. Last year, he had 37 points in 82 games. I'm talking about 2013, 2014. Before that, he had 27 in 48 games. The year before that, 53. So I guess he's been dropping a little bit, but this year was the biggest drop. He went from 37 points to 27 points, which is an over 25% decrease. Brian, is this kind of the end for Brian Campbell? You know, he's near the end of his career. I guess he's 36 years old. Do you think now it'll be a struggle for him to get over 30 points again? Or do you think he should be better than what he did last year going into next season? I mean, Florida scored all those goals. Like Everyone's talking about how Florida finally had some offense. And yet somehow Brian Campbell had his worst season. We've been considering whether this is the end for Brian Campbell for like three years now. Because, yeah, he is getting older. He's relatively old compared to a lot of defensemen in the NHL. And especially when he went to Florida, they have not been very good for very long. Like he went to a very weak Florida team and was really like sometimes the lone worthwhile fantasy guy on that squad. So has anything changed at this point? Is is the jig finally up for Brian Campbell? And I think we forget that like he's always been a really good player, a good fantasy guy. And I never felt like he got the credit he deserved after he left Buffalo. But he's been stellar with San Jose, Chicago, and Florida over the second half of his career. And he's been a number one guy on his teams for so long. But I wonder if now's the time when that is no longer the case. Let's look at what he did this past season. He saw his time on ice per game cut by more than three minutes compared to his previous three seasons as a Panther. He lost a couple minutes at even strength, but the real big loss was about a minute per game of power play time. And that power play time has been Brian Campbell's bread and butter over the course of his career. In the three years prior to this season, Only P.K. Subban had seen more power play ice time than Brian Campbell, and Campbell was pretty good with the minutes he got, too. Out of 53 players who'd seen more than 400 minutes of ice time over that three-year span, Campbell ranked 15th in points recorded per 60 minutes of ice time, just ahead of P.K. Subban, actually. This year, in fewer minutes, he did not see the same kind of success that he had in previous years. And the funny part is that he still did lead Florida defensemen in power play time, even with those decreased minutes. And he did quarterback their first unit for most of the season. But let's take a closer look. Does first place in power play time on ice per game mean as much in 2013-14 as it did in 2014-15? Well, in 2013-14, he played nearly 90 seconds more on the power play than Dmitry Kulikov, who saw the second most power play ice time per game amongst Florida Blue Liners. This year, that yawning 90-second gap was close to 12 seconds between first place Campbell and second place Aaron Ekblad. So we can see that Campbell still led Florida defensemen in power play minutes, but that does not mean that his role did not decrease. 
His five-on-five shooting percentage was also pretty awful, by the way. But if we pay too close attention to that, we might not be seeing the forest for the trees. Sure, Brian Campbell could bounce back, but his ceiling is going to be lower than before now that the Panthers have this Ekblad guy hanging around. He's going to be eating minutes and being given every opportunity to develop into their new top defenseman. Not only is Ekblad a cause for concern for Brian Campbell's production, but Brian Campbell just turned 36 yesterday. Happy birthday. Happy belated birthday, Brian Campbell. But maybe sad birthday because it's just going to be pretty darn tough to match his previous numbers at this point in his career. Elon, let's play a little game. Can you tell me the name of a 36-year-old or older defenseman who has scored more than 35 points in an NHL season since 2007-2008? Seven active players have done it. Seven players who are currently still in the league? Yeah, exactly. Hmm. Maybe Zdeno Chara? Yeah, 40 points in 2013-14. I guess a guy we talked about recently, Mark Streit? Yeah, Mark Streit had 52 points. Andre Markov, not far behind with 15. Those are both this past season. The list is littered with names like Nicholas Lidstrom, Scott Niedermeyer, Brian Falski, Rob Blake. The other active players are Kimo Timonen, Marek Lipsky, and Sergei Gonchar, and Dan Boyle, actually. But aside from those names and a couple others, there really have not been any NHLers who have scored 35 or more points as a defenseman in a year in which they were 36 years old or older. And if you take Nicholas Lidstrom off the list, it's really only happened like 15 times in the last eight years. So all this to say that the odds are not smiling on Brian Campbell, especially now that he has another defenseman breathing down his neck for top billing. I feel like this is the year that we finally consider that Brian Campbell might not be a 35-point defenseman. You might feel more comfortable pegging him around 30 this year. Yeah, I guess that seems about right. Too bad. I guess he's going to slowly go into the sunset. But like you said, he's had a great career and... Who knows, he might not get as many points as he used to, but he might still be a core part of a Panthers team that could make some noise next season if all of their young players can continue to improve, including that Aaron Ekblad guy who you mentioned, who seems like he might be pretty good as well. Let's end the show with a goalie, the goalie that we heard the most about throughout the season. I'm sure people know exactly who I'm going to say if they listen to the podcast, Kari Letnin. What a disaster of a season for Kari Letton and the Dallas Stars overall. Brian, remember you and I made a bet on one of these sites. We put down $20 on the Stars winning the cup at these great odds. We thought this is going to be great. That did not pan out. They did not make the playoffs. They sucked. Kari Letton sucked. Let's look at these numbers. Ooh, even just looking at these numbers, it's so sad. He had a 9.03 save percentage this season. And compare that to his 9.14 career average. The year before, he had 9.19. The year before that, 9.16, 9.22. He's been a elite star goalie, no pun intended, and now all of a sudden he was brutal. He was a disaster. Do we blame him? Or do we blame the Stars team? Do we think that Kari Lettinen bounces back next year, or do you need to avoid drafting him like the plague? Yeah, this was not a good year for him this year. At even strength, his save percentage ranked 25th out of 29 regular NHL goalies, ahead of only Cam Ward. Ryan Miller, Mike Smith, and Ben Scrivens. And that even-strength shooting percentage really was the culprit. Lettinen was 17th of 28 regular goalies in the NHL this year in terms of penalty kill save percentage. So we can give him like sort of an average number there and see that most of the damage 
this year was done at even strength. And this was really uncharacteristic for him. I feel like he does have this reputation of being an inconsistent goalie. And maybe that's because of some of his injury history. And, you know, he did play for the Thrashers where playing consistently well was always a bit of an added challenge. But this season, his even strength save percentage was about 10% lower than what he's put up in each of his last seven seasons before this one. So which Kerry Lettinen is the real one? I wouldn't suggest it's this year's. I don't think he's quite over the hill just yet. I think he probably still has a couple years of good goaltending left in him. It'll be a matter of whether he and the team around him can pull it together enough to give him the numbers that we hoped for this year. I think it would be silly to hope for the best numbers of his career going forward, but I still think it would be reasonable to hope for numbers better than the ones he put up this past season. And hopefully Dallas will win a few more games too. So in terms of tiering, where would you put a guy like Letton in? Like, let's say you have your top tier with like the elite guys that maybe we talked about Dubnik joining, but you know, like the Lungfists and the the Rines, and then you have a second tier of goalies. You know how you said last year when we did our goalie smorgasbord podcast, the guys who are like pretty okay goalies on good teams, and I think that's where we put Kari Lettinen. Does he fall a tier below now, or do you think he's still in sort of that second tier of solid guys to own? No, I think he's done enough before this season to earn a stay of conviction from being dropped down a tier. I still consider him an okay goalie on a good team. And like you said, we'll really fine-tune and get into details about our tiers on our S'more Goalies Board 2015 episode coming up in our preseason series. But for now, I'm comfortable leaving Kerry Lettinen about where he was this year. The only difference going into this year's draft is maybe you don't need to rush to grab him this year as you might have had to last year when everybody was so excited about him in the Dallas Stars. Right, so maybe same tier, but closer to the bottom of that tier. That's a shame. I guess you could say that all the players that we've talked about this week, uh, that's a shame. Not a great year. Some of them you think will be able to bounce back. Some of them you're not so confident about. It seems like, for the most part, you seem pretty optimistic. You know, it's fun also doing this podcast. We'll get to start to learn how good you and I are at these projections as years go by. You know, you only had one year of projections last year. Now we'll have a second year. We'll start to build a history for ourselves of how good we are and then we'll be able to adjust how we go into looking at these things in the offseason. So much fun, Brian. Thanks for joining me for another summer series episode of Keeping Carlson. And of course, thanks to everyone for listening to the show. I don't know how many people are listening. If you're listening, tweet at us, at Keeping Carlson. I'm curious to know. Also, as always, I want to thank the patrons of Keeping Carlson. I know it's not exactly the most exciting time to be a patron. We've had a couple fun discussions on the Facebook group, and definitely now's the time if you want to jump in and ask about your keepers or something like that. Now's the time when you're going to get a lot of attention because there's not too much activity going on. And we do thank all the patrons, like we've mentioned before. At this point, we just want anyone who wants to be a patron for any amount donated, they could join the Facebook group. They get access to our patron cast, which we're going to be scheduling. Probably today we'll be sending an email out. It'll probably be next week. Also, I've hinted or I've intimated that we're going to be having a patron-only keeper pool. That's going to be epic. And Brian and I are going to be talking about that as the summer progresses. So lots of reasons to become a patron of Keeping Carlson before things get really crazy as we approach the upcoming season. But okay, 
That's enough rambling for today. Hope you enjoyed the episode. We're probably just going to continue on the same theme in a couple of weeks from now because we still have more players that we think had bad seasons and we want to discuss whether or not we think they'll be able to bounce back. If you have an idea of a player that you think we should talk about under this theme, again, tweet at us at Keeping Carlson. We'd love to get your suggestions. But with that, let's cue the outro music. And Brian, read us the credits. Wait, Elon, stop that outro music. We have not yet mentioned the current leaders of the 2015 Keeping Carlson playoff pool. And I'd like to give a shout out to the current first place team, Stay Gold, Pony Boy, who has Stop, Stammer Time, Conquest, and the Ruckus Crew kind of breathing down their neck right now. So can't rest easy just yet, Pony Boy, but you are on the right track so far. Oh, yeah, I can't believe I forgot to mention that, especially because I feel like it has to be mentioned how you really gave me a hard time about how I was so close to the bottom and you were actually contending. And oh, how times have changed. Of course, neither of us are in the top 20, but I think it's worth bragging a little bit that you've fallen all the way to 53rd out of 61. Well, I've slowly but surely been climbing. I'm now up to 26. And I still got a potential to go higher, so watch out. Stay gold, pony boy, and stop stammer time. I don't know if I'll catch those guys, but I think I could maybe crack the top 20. So take that, Brian. Yeah, my four remaining players all on the Tampa Bay Lightning just are not cutting it for me right now. I'm really even closer to the bottom if you sort by players remaining. So my prediction skills for what teams would make it were very very poor this year. I'm ahead of just a bunch who have only three players remaining. And then the contrarians were very contrarian because they have zero players remaining in that playoff pool. But Elon, I just want to point out that if you measure by points per game, I'm still ahead of you. Well, at least you have that consolation. Give us the credits already, Brian. Okay, with that outro music restarted, this show was supported by our patrons. Find out more at keepingcarlson.com slash patron. This show was researched with help from War on Ice, Hockey Analysis, Hockey Reference, Own the Puck, Behind the Net, Yahoo Sports, and ESPN Fantasy Hockey. Thank you, sir. Looking forward to talking to you again in a couple of weeks. Yeah, speak to you then, and until then, please keep on keeping Carlson. <laughs>